Chapter 5 of Hellenic History This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Botes Hellenic History by George Willis Botsford Chapter 5 Evolution of City-State Amphictyonis and Leagues Economic and Political Transition from Minoan to Hellenic Times Limiting itself narrowly to islands and coasts, the Minoan civilization owed its evolution to the interplay of commercial and industrial cities. Its decay consisted largely in the breaking down of the highly organized life of the city, and a reversion to the simpler forms of existence native to field and mountain. The coming of the northerners, accustomed to nothing better than the village, accentuated this change. The economy of the Middle Age, accordingly, was one of hunting, grazing, and incipient agriculture. The emergence of historical Greece, on the other hand, from the obscurity and depression of that period, consisted essentially in the revival of city civilization, based partly on the old seats of Minoan life and partly on newer foundations. It has already been noted that the area of the Minoan culture, mainly the Aegean islands and coasts, now becoming the home of brilliant cities, constituted the very heart of the Hellenic world. The Ethnos Ethnos The interior and northwest of the peninsula, keeping in the background of culture, retained the more primitive form of the country-state. This institution is designated as an ethnos, essentially a community resting on the basis of blood, and negatively described as wanting the city organization. Such a people occupied a definite territory, usually limited by natural boundaries as mountain chains or seas and was distinguished from other ethne by dialect and customs. Examples are the Aetolians, Acarnanians, Locrians, and Arcadians. A large ethnos like the Aetolians comprised several sub-ethne which we may venture to call tribes. The latter were divided into smaller groups, the subdivision continuing till we reach the Fratri, brotherhood, and its component families. The members of a fratry as kinsmen stood side by side on the field of battle, and in time of peace protected the lives of the brethren, or wreaked vengeance for their slain. Each group from fratry upward, based on real or pretended kinship, had its social institutions, government and gods. But of these matters, the ancient historians give us mere hints. The village, Komi, the canton, Systema, the city-state, Polis, Polis. The people lived in small, widely separated villages, most of them unwalled. 
Though the village naturally contained a nucleus of kinsfolk, it was fundamentally territorial, comprising a mixed population, and served accordingly as the first step in the transition from tribal to political society. Neighboring villages, with little respect for the ties of kin, joined for mutual protection in a canton, which usually centered in a fortified hilltop. The village chief, Demiurgos, public worker, represented his community in the cantonal diet. Several such Arcadian cantons continued down into historical time. Under conditions favorable to the advancement of civilization, to the accumulation of wealth and to political development, the cantonal center became a city, polis. Throughout the historical period, we constantly observe the formation of cities from villages, and cannot doubt that in prehistoric Greece the process was similar. Although the city thus developed on the basis of neighborhood, rather than of blood, it organized itself on the ethnic patterns in tribes, or their equivalents, and fratries, and assumed for its citizens a kinship which was fictitious. The new city was a sovereign state, whose organization and government sufficed for her entire territory. A community of this kind is described as a city-state, in contrast with a more primitive ethnic community, and with the territorial state of modern times. At the opening of the period now under consideration, there were in Hellas, in addition to many ethne, a countless number of these states, ranging from a few square miles to a few hundred square miles in area. Monarchy. Whether of ethnos or polis, the government was originally vested in king, council, and popular assembly. Though essentially like that described by Homer, Minoan survivals in many places must have modified it in the direction of greater definiteness and complexity. Its activity, however, was limited to defense against foreign enemies and domestic rebellion, maintenance of the gods' goodwill and the arbitration of private disputes. The defense of life itself, as has been intimated, belonged to the families and fratries. Law was in fact customary, but the general feeling prevailed that the king who ruled by divine sanction, received his judgments from Zeus or Apollo or some other deity. Transition to Aristocracy, beginning about 750. In some ethne, as in Epirus and Macedon, monarchy persisted throughout historical times. The more progressive city-state, however, as the Ionian, began to adopt aristocracies about the middle of the 8th century. The change was gradual. The great nobles who formed the council took an ever-increasing part in the government till they usurped complete control. Their means of aggrandizement were the degradation of the king 
to a mere priest and judge. The institution of new offices in addition to the kingship, the reduction of the tenure of all offices to a single year, and the appointment and supervision of officials, rendering them responsible to the council for their administration. In this way, the council made itself supreme, while the officers became its tools, and the assembly lost the little significance it had possessed under the monarchy. Law The idea of law underwent a corresponding change. While it remained for a time purely customary as before, the nobles generally regarded themselves not as recipients of legal revelations, but as keepers of a body of law once divinely established and now handed down as a precious heritage from father to son. The nobles made use of their legal monopoly to decide cases capriciously or from motives of favoritism or in pursuit of bribes. Persuaded by their love of money, exclaims Solon of Athens, the nobles desire recklessly to destroy the great city. As to the people, the mind of their magistrates is dishonest, magistrates who are doomed to suffer many ills because of their monstrous violence. They grow wealthy in obedience to unjust deeds. Codifications of the Law Zaleucus These evils, it was doubtless thought, could be partially remedied by the codification of legal usages. The state already possessed some written documents, including lists of magistrates and treaties, and it was but natural that writing should now be extended to the preservation of laws. The earliest European code known to history was produced at Locri, Italy. The story is told that, on consulting the oracle, in a time of civil confusion, the Locrians were directed to a slave shepherd named Zaleucus. Set free and established as legislator, he drew up a code of laws which he explained were given him by Athena in dreams. He carefully regulated the lives of the citizens and imposed the stigma of a depraved character on women and men who indulged in an excess of liberty or luxury of dress or ornament. He placed property and business contracts under better control and deprived the judge of the power to give arbitrary decisions. Ordinances concerning personal injuries were severe, requiring an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. In a case of appeal, we are informed, judge and appealant had each other to appear with his neck in a noose, and the one who failed to sustain his cause was executed on the spot. In like manner, the proposer of a new law was required to advocate it with a noose about his neck. The result was that the Locrians became famous for conservatism, 
military spirit, hospitality and sound morals. There at Locri, says Pindar, do ye, O muses, join in the song of triumph. I pledge my word that to no stranger banishing folk ye shall come, nor unacquainted with things noble, but of the highest in the arts and valiant with a spear. With the muses setting myself thereunto fervently, have I embraced the Locrian's famous race, and have sprinkled my honey over a city of goodly men. The laws of Zaleucus will suffice as an illustration of early codes. Those of Athens will be considered in another place. From aristocracy to tyranny. In Thessaly, the aristocrats, who had wrested the supreme power from the king, long retained their supremacy. Elsewhere, they were usually too weak to endure more than a century or thereabout. Often, the aristocracy was overthrown by a tyrant, usurper, unconstitutional ruler. It is noteworthy that among the Greek states of the 7th century, Lacedaemon alone, so far as we know, possessed a standing army sufficient for maintaining domestic peace and protecting life and property. The rest were filled with civil strife. This condition made the usurpation of government easy. Sometimes a magistrate refused to lay down his office on its expiration, but maintained himself by force. In this way he became a tyrant. Or the tyrant might be an umpire, whom warring factions chose to arbitrate between them, and who took advantage of the occasion to seize the government. More commonly he was an ambitious politician, who, failing in a struggle for office, appealed to the people, promising them economic or political advantage in return for their support. A military reputation, added to smoothness of speech, increases chances for success. With the help of the commons he would overthrow his fellow aristocrats and make himself master. Tyranny at Corinth, 657-586, to 586. conventional though uncertain dates. Among the earliest tyrannies was that of the Kypselidae at Corinth. Kypselus, the founder, overthrew the ruling Bacchiadae, to whom he was related on his mother's side. During his reign of thirty years, he drove many Corinthians into exile. Many he deprived of their wealth, and very many more of their lives. These words of Herodotus should apply only to his treatment of the nobles. By the people he was so beloved throughout his reign as to require no personal guard. The backyard policy of colonization and patronage of the useful and fine arts he inherited and handed down to his son and successor, Periander. Periander. Of the latter, Herodotus has still more discreditable stories to tell. Elsewhere, however, we learn that he was an able commander in war, and a wise and moderate ruler. 
by checking the importation of slaves, he assured to skilled workmen a better social standing than this class enjoyed anywhere else in Hellas. To encourage agriculture as well as political quiet, he forbade unoccupied persons to live within the city. A council which he established was charged with the duty of checking the growth of luxury and of seeing that no one spent more than his income warranted. As market and harbor customs sufficed for the needs of government, the citizens were relieved of direct taxes. These statesmanlike measures help account for his long reign of 44 years. The tyranny survived him but three years, when it was overthrown by a band of conspirators. Tyranny at Sicyon, 670-560 Conventional, though uncertain dates. Next in brilliance, among the early Hellenic tyrants, stood the Orthagoride of Sicyon. This city lay northwest of Corinth, in the narrow but fertile valley of the Esopus. The little district was as famous for its garden and orchard products as for bronzewares and potteries. In addition to landlords and their serfs, there had developed a considerable class of artisans and traders. Whereas usually the tyrant was of noble birth, Orthagoras, who usurped the government of Sicyon, was from a lower social class. Clisthenes, early 6th century. Of his descendants, it was Clisthenes who made his city one of the most brilliant in Hellas. His first effort was to free Sicyon from the political control which Argos hitherto had exercised over it. This object he accomplished in a successful war with a dominant power. Moreover, he forbade the rhapsodists to chant in Sicyon their epics, which celebrated the glories of Argos. To free his countrymen from religious dependence on their former master, he determined to expel from his city the cult of Adrastus, an Argive hero. With this end in view, he built a shrine to the Theban hero Melanippus, who in story had figured as a deadly enemy of Adrastus. To the newly adopted hero he transferred all the revenues and festivals of the old, whereupon the priests of Adrastus beat a hasty retreat from Sicyon. This anecdote illustrates the singular importance of hero cults among the early Greeks. The three Doric tribes, to which the landowners belonged, still reminded Sicyon of its close connection with Argos, till Clisthenes abolished their names, contemptuously substituting piglings, donkeys, and porkers. Whereas his own tribe of shoremen, evidently comprising artisans and traders, he dignified by the name of ruling class. Archelai. This measure hints at a policy which transformed Sicyon from an agricultural to an industrial and commercial state. The wooing of Agariste. Another picture of this illustrious tyrant, 
drawn by Herodotus, shows him a lordly generous host. On his invitation came young men of noblest birth from every part of Hellas to woo his daughter Agariste, and for a whole year he entertained them while he tested their athletic and musical training, their social and table manners, their breeding and temper. He looked with favor on Hippocleides of Athens, till the latter one evening displayed a marvelous skill in dancing. After representing Laconian figures and then Attic, he closed with a performance on the table head downward his feet gesticulating in air. Ah, son of Tisander, exclaimed the sovereign, thou hast danced away thy wedding. The other answered, Hippocleides cares not, which became a proverb at Athens. In a polite address, Clisthenes then expressed his regret at not having a daughter to bestow on every one of his highly accomplished guests, and promising them a silver talent each as a trifling substitute, he concluded, To the son of Alcmeon, Megacles, I offer my daughter Agariste in marriage, according to the laws of the Athenians. The offer was accepted, and the two who were thus united became the parents of the famous Athenian lawgiver Clisthenes, and the great-grandparents of the still more famous Pericles. This story sheds a pleasant light on the social relations and intermarriage of the great nobles of Greece, on the genial elegance of the tyrant, and on his wide interstate connections. The death of Clisthenes, about 570, closed the century-long rule of his dynasty. Evidently, other tyrants succeeded, and it was not till near the end of the 6th century, about 510, that Sicyon shook off the yoke. In the case of both Corinth and Sicyon, the revolution was accomplished by a band of noble conspirators, supported by the Lacedaemonians. Both cities adopted moderate oligarchy, and both entered the Peloponnesian League. General Character of the Tyranny These examples sufficiently illustrate, for the present purpose, the character of the earlier tyranny. Whatever the tyrant's origin, his authority was generally exercised in the interest of peace, material prosperity, and progress in civilization, putting an end alike to the factional strife of nobles and the sectional conflicts of tribes, he reduced his people to harmony and established domestic peace. No force in the Hellenic world of the time contributed so much to cultural progress. The tyrant's patronage attracted poets, painters, sculptures and architects who formed in his court a brilliant and versatile society. Everywhere, excepting in Sicyon, rhapsodists were engaged to recite the Homeric poems at popular gatherings. 
and everywhere at festivals in honor of the new god, Dionysus, song and recitation, the germ of the drama, celebrated the sufferings and joys he experienced among mankind. By thus fostering literary interest among the people, and by attaching them to newer cults, he freed them in a degree from the priestly influence of the old nobility, and educated them for self-government. Redress of legal and political wrongs the tyrant's promise to the commons he fulfilled by putting an end to aristocratic oppression to the exactions of landlords and to the unjust sentences of magistrates generally he enforced the existing laws and constitution though he was far from permitting the people to enjoy any real political power the leveling of social classes the enforcement of law by mercenary aid, developing a much-needed civic discipline, together with an enlightened educational policy, constituted an essential and long-reaching stride on the way from aristocracy to democracy. Necessarily, however, as the tyrant concentrated governmental power in his own hands, the political rights of the citizens slept, while individuals of pronounced ambition were exiled or put to death. The long continuance of despotism would have crushed the genius of the Greeks and reduced them to the dead level of Asiatics. Fortunately, tyrannies were short-lived, whereas the usurper himself was a statesman his sons and even more his grandsons corrupted by wealth and unlimited power so degenerated as to give the word tyrant the meaning which it had retained to the present time almost inevitably however the tyranny was succeeded either by a democracy or by an oligarchy more liberally constituted than the earlier aristocracy oligarchy literally an oligarchy is a rule of the few according to aristotle the few who base their right upon wealth the narrowest and most oppressive form arose where a clique of wealthy men seized the government and exploited the state in their own interest it is characterized by aristotle as dynastic a hydra-headed tyranny, far more heartless than the despotism of an individual. Broader and more endurable was the knightly oligarchy, in which participation in the government depended upon economic ability to furnish all necessary equipments for service on horseback. The knight provided from his own estate either a single horse or two horses, one for himself, the other for his squire. Calchis and Eritrea are examples. This form of oligarchy, in which political privileges are graded on the basis of property, is precisely described as a timocracy. 
Timocracy of the Heavy Infantry. A more popular form was so broad as to admit to active citizenship all who could equip themselves with a panoply for war. The latter developed from the former, mainly through the growth of states in population and wealth. The earliest government which existed among the Hellenes, after the overthrow of the kingly power, grew up from the warrior class, and was originally taken from the knights, for strength and superiority in war at that time depended on cavalry. Indeed, without discipline, infantry are useless, and in ancient times there was no military knowledge or tactics, and therefore the strength of armies lay in their cavalry. But when cities increased and the heavy armed grew in strength, more had a share in the government. The best known example is that of Athens immediately before Solon. A timocracy of the heavy infantry may expand, either directly or through the tyranny to democracy. The latter kind of government will be treated in connection with the reforms of Clisthenes at Athens. Political versatility of the Hellenes By means of typical instances, we have now traced the main lines of development from monarchy to the beginning of democracy. For appreciating the genius of the Greeks, however, we must bear in mind that in the creation of forms of government, they showed the same boundless versatility as in the fields of literature, art, and philosophy. Among their most precious contributions to civilization is the republican government which they devised in endless variety and which assured to the citizens a varying degree of liberty and self-government in this atmosphere of freedom they created political science as represented by the works of plato and aristotle we must not condemn these efforts because in some or all respects they fall short of the actualities or ideals of today. But in all fairness, we must regard the Greeks as pioneers, whose political strivings, necessarily tentative, have furnished to after ages suggestions and inspirations for a more perfectly balanced democracy. Combinations of States the motive which first led neighboring states, whether ethne or cities, to combine in leagues, lies far anterior to recorded history. It might have been a border market, the need of allies, the desire for frontier security, or a nascent consciousness of kindred blood. Whatever may have been the practical impetus to friendly intercourse, such neighboring states chose the sanctuary of a deity conveniently situated, at which to hold a periodical festival for worship, often to a fair for the interchange of goods. A union of neighbors, ostensibly for a religious object, but sometimes serving more practical ends, 
was termed an Amphictyony, that of Delos, centering in the shrine of Apollo on that island, reached the height of its splendor, probably early in the seventh century. The Homeric hymn to the Delian Apollo, composed at that time, celebrates the gathering of the Ionians, with their wives and children, to worship this god, with music, dancing, and gymnastic exercises and to trade from an original union of insular neighbors it had come to include all the ionians without ever assuming a political character it eventually declined another amphictyony comprised twelve ethne in the neighborhood of thermopylae its earliest seat of worship was the shrine of demeter at Anthela, near that pass, but in time it acquired the second and more important center in the temple of Apollo at Delphi. Hence it came to be known as the Delphic Amphictyony. The object of the league was the protection of the shrines, especially of the temple and oracle of Apollo. The government lay in the hands of an Amphictyonic council, comprising forty-eight speakers, four from each tribe, and twelve recorders. The speakers alone proposed and debated measures. The recorders alone voted. A resolution adopted by this council in the immemorial past imposed an oath upon the members of the League not to destroy an Amphictyonic city, or to cut it off from running water in war or peace. Here was one of the earliest attempts to mitigate the primitive rigors of war. Many other decrees of the Council are known to us, including one which forbade the Greeks to levy tolls on pilgrims to the shrine and another requiring the states of the League to keep in repair their own roads leading to Delphi. Against the state which trespassed upon any rights of the god, it had the power to declare a sacred war. Although the council sometimes championed the cause of Hellas, as could any association or individual, it never acquired a recognized authority over all the Greeks, and notwithstanding its occasional participation in political affairs, it remained essentially a religious convocation. Hegemony A union religious at basis tended to become political, especially when it contained a state of superior power and secular ambition. For example, the Boeotian Amphictyony, whose deities were Poseidon and Athena, was converted into a federal union by Thebes. Its constitution, which developed toward the end of the 5th century, grouped the states of the League in 11 units, roughly equal in population. These units were equally represented in the federal magistracy, council and court, 
and had equal military and financial burdens. It provided further for a referendum of important matters to the states, and seems to have admitted of an initiative from the states. Theoretically, the arrangement was most admirable, but in fact the Thebans, who constituted four of the eleven units of representation, dominated the federal policy. These examples will suffice for illustrating the Amphictyony, and the earlier experimentation with political unions of states. Other confederations will be mentioned in the course of this narrative. The brilliancy of the Greek mind is devising systems of combination, however, was for a long time more than offset by the excessive individualism of small republics, to whom sovereign independence was the breath of life. End of chapter 5